Earlier this week, a few of our younger members were asked by some of our Vineyard Kids team what they thought makes a good church. And Daniel and Matthew said, worship songs that have actions. You need volunteers and people to help make it work. Melon and donuts, they came up. Uh, a church where you can feel the Holy Spirit well. Gunging. Apparently that is one of the key ingredients of a good church, that there's gunging involved. Evie, who is seven, said that we get to have fun. Ben and Matthew said God's presence, the people, worship, friendship. Jack said people who care about you, listen to you, and also people who are generous. Issy, age 10, said, I think good worship time, good prayer time, and looking out for each other is what makes a church good. Now, we're starting a series today called Being Church. It's a series that I'm sharing with some others, and over the coming weeks and months, we'll be looking at a few different aspects of what it means to be church highlighting some of the qualities that we feel are really important. And some of those are actually touched on by the children's comments from this week that I just read. Alas, there isn't space to do a sermon on gunging, but we're going to cover most of the other points as well as a number of other ones. Um, things like being a supernatural church, welcoming and accepting church, praying and outward-looking, city-influencing, serving and sending compassionate, Bible-loving, and Jesus-centered. Now, if you've been to a newcomer's meal, if you haven't, we'd love to invite you to come to one, sign up at the Connect area. But if you have, either you know, recently or over the years, you will have heard Debbie tell our personal story about our own journey and then how this church came to be. And both of us had wavered in our discipleship in our late teens, early 20s, and we recommitted our lives to God in the early 1980s, I said a long time ago, through connecting with teams from the vineyard. They were from the United States, invited over by British churches. And from that point on, as we came back solidly to follow Jesus, we uh, threw ourselves just into stuff for God. We spent most of our evenings ministering to people in our home. We traveled uh, around this country and beyond, taking, as members of teams, teaching about ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit. And also, we spent quite a lot of time caring for the poor. And we had this growing frustration with the disconnect between our friends who were interested in Jesus, but they just didn't get along with the church. And there were too many barriers as far as they were concerned. They, they just couldn't relate to this thing called the church. They wanted to know about Jesus. And we longed for a church where people like that could relate to the Christian faith without some of the barriers that they were experiencing. And we began to dream about the kind of church we would want to be a part of. And we found that growing vision drawing us deeper into the vineyard movement and compelling us eventually to plant this church. Now, we started 20 years ago. There were just 10 of us, our two lads and three other couples came up from London with a dream, really, a dream uh, that we could be part of a church that looks something like the church we find in Acts chapter 2. We dreamed of being a church that would reach the generation coming up behind us. We dreamed of being the kind of church you can invite your friends to. And really, we dreamed of being the kind of church which, by the grace of God, Trent Vineyard has become, it's become so much more than we ever dreamed about or ever imagined was even remotely possible. 
When you talk to the average person in the street about church, they probably think a building. It's a place, isn't it, to go to, that you go to church, probably a building with a pointy bit on it, maybe if it's been around a while, a church spire. It's a place where you go and get married and you go and get uh, buried, and you probably hear people refer to going to church, but we believe that church isn't a place that you go to, it's something that we are. And there are many pictures, many metaphors for the church that we find in the Bible. And I'm hoping that as we go through the series, we'll develop a deeper understanding of the kind of church that God wants us to be. One of the pictures is of a family. There's another picture of a building. It's not a building made of stones or bricks like normal buildings, but it's made of living stones, followers of Jesus. Another's a body made up of different parts that together make up the whole. Another is the bride who is in love with the betrothed, her husband, and we're looking forward to Jesus' return when Jesus will be united with his bride. Whatever the picture, we know that the church is precious to God and it's very, very important to him. And we know that he's involved in building it. We read in one of the accounts of Jesus' life, it says this, I will build my church. He said that. I will build my church and the gates of death will not overcome it. So this is not something we do as we are involved in the building of the church that we do apart from him. The church is his. It doesn't belong to the pastors. It doesn't belong to the congregation. It's not our church. It's for Jesus. It's about him. But we also get to be a part of this wonderful enterprise. God's called us to be co-workers as we build the church together. God is on a mission he wants every single person he has created to come into a saving knowledge of his son and an eternal relationship with him. That is his mission, all ultimately for his glory. And as we come into submission to God's mission, he gives us a commission. And that commission, we find at the end of Matthew chapter 28, the great commission. Great Commission. And Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, all kinds of people, that means baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And so that's basically what we do. That's what churches are for. That's what, ultimately for the glory of God, we invite people who don't know God to encounter him and to commit their lives to following Jesus. That's going and making disciples. We help people then to walk in freedom, to get healed up, to become discipled. And then we help people connect with what they're gifted for and called to and actually put them to work in the, in the, the field, as it were, the harvest field and the, the, the uh, field of God's kingdom work. And then to send them out to reach others who don't know God. And so that cycle then goes on. As they go out to reach others, we're bringing those who don't know God in. We're then discipling them, getting them healed up, equipping them for ministry, and then releasing them into ministry, and then sending them out to, you guessed it, begin the cycle all over again. All for the glory of God. And we're engaged in this great enterprise to build the church and to be the church among all the expressions of God's church here in Nottingham, in this country, and across the world. And we need to learn from Jesus. We need to be led by him and work with him as he builds his church so that it can be all that God intends it to be. So that was all by way of introduction. So let me now welcome Dave Miller, who's gonna begin the series looking at being a worshiping church. Dave. 
Yeah, well, good evening. I'm uh, really excited, actually, to talk about being a worshipping church. Um, I've been involved in leading worship for quite a long time now. I started when I was 10 years old. Um, I think I only knew A and D on the guitar, and I found a song that consisted purely of A and D. And so um, what I lacked in skill, I made up for in enthusiasm, and uh, I just went for it. So uh, that was about 20 years ago, so I've been leading worship for a long time. So I'm really excited to speak about being a worshipping church. During that sort of, uh, during that time, that 20 years, I guess, I've been doing it, there's been some um, amazing moments, but also some total crash and burn moments, um, one of which uh, happened on this stage here. I remember a Sunday morning a few years ago, and it was a dedication service. Um, so there's a lot more people than normal. The room's full of people, and um, uh, it's just at the beginning, and so we had somebody come and pray, just before we began singing, and I was standing just about here with my guitar, and I had my hands up and my eyes closed. And during the prayer, I felt my guitar slip off its guitar strap. And um, my heart I, it skipped a beat, and uh, I, as quick as I could, went to grab it, um, but missed the guitar and caught just one string, just one of the strings. So the string snaps, the guitar smashes over the stage, and uh, all this time, it's plugged into the system. So all this is coming through the speakers. And um, I, honestly, I, was, I didn't know what to do. I was fighting uh, tears, looking at my poor guitar there, wondering what's happened to it, but also conscious this is a pretty embarrassing moment for me. And uh, so anyway, I, the guitar wasn't in a good state. There was no way that I was going to be able to use it. So I decided I'm going to have to lead the worship today without a guitar, which... I don't know whether you know, but that, for some reason, for me, that's like such a vulnerable thing. It like feels totally naked and vulnerable. And um, anyway, I thought, I'm just going to have to give it my best shot. So I started, and we went through the first song, and the band played. And, um, and then Nigel Briggs, my boss here, he uh, very kindly uh, brought me a guitar to use. He brought me a spare. And um, I plugged it in, and so the next song, I strummed to start. And honestly, in all my life, I've never heard a more out-of-tune guitar. <laughs> to, to this day, I think he must have been out the back, just, you know, turning those tuning knobs. Like, I think this is going to be so funny. Um, <laughs> honestly, so I couldn't use it, so I put that guitar down and just had to see the set out with uh, no guitar. And I felt, you know, felt like it had gone pretty well, considering uh, until later that day, had some friends around for lunch, and um, I, you know, we were talking about it. I said, oh, how do you think it went? And they, they were like, it was great, um, except for the fact that you, you played air guitar all the way through <laughs> <laughs> the entire set. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But anyway, despite that, I still love worshipping. I still love leading worship. And I'm passionate about us being a worshipping church. Some of you uh, may be here this evening thinking, what on earth? just happened. You know, what was all that about? All that singing about why do people have their hands, clo their hands um, raised, their eyes closed? What on earth have I come to? How do I get out? And the answer is you can't. <laughs> we have you now. <laughs> um, what we call the worship time, that sort of 30 minutes of singing is quite a big part of the service. We do it every week. And so it's a good question to ask, you know, what does it even mean to worship? Why do we do it? What even is worship? And I just have three really quick answers. In a narrow sense, it's what we've just done. We often would refer to that time of singing as a time of worship, this service as a time of worship. 
In a narrow sense, it's what we've just done. In a broader sense, it's everything that we do. Our whole life, lives lived to please God, lived his way rather than our own. And the Bible talks about it in this way quite a bit, the whole of our lives. But in the widest sense, which, and it includes both of those others, in the widest sense, worship is the ascription of worth. That's actually what the word means. We worship what we value highest. We worship whatever has our heart's affection, our mind's attention, our soul's ambition. Whatever has our heart's affection, our mind's attention, our soul's ambition. Whatever we love most, think about most, pursue most. John Wimber, who started the Vineyard Movement, he said that our checkbooks and our calendars are theological documents. They tell us more than anything else what we love, what we really value. To worship God is to love and value him above all other things. That's what we were just doing here this morning, this evening, telling him how much we love him, how much we need him, how much we want him, how much we value him. So that's what worship is. Ascribing him ultimate worth and value. <clears throat> but why do it? Why worship God? And I want to just look this evening at four reasons. It's not an exhaustive list, um, but four reasons to worship God. Four reasons for being a worshipping church. And the first reason is this. Worship is our purpose. Worship is our purpose. Everyone is a worshipper. Everyone has something they value most. The only question is, who or what is that thing? I don't know whether you've seen or read um, any of the Harry Potter books, um, but in one of them, there's this um, moment, there's this scene with the mirror of Erised, and uh, Harry and Ron are running around the building. Um, and anyway, they come across this mirror, and it's called the mirror of Erised, which is actually desire spelt backwards, um, as if reflected in a mirror. Um, the mirror of Erised, and they're looking in it, and they don't, it's not a normal mirror, they don't see themselves reflected in it. And uh, wise old Dumbledore arrives, and um, he says, the mirror shows you the, most deep, the deepest and most desperate desire of your heart. The deepest and most desperate desires of your heart. So Harry, um, who was orphaned as a, you know, when he was younger, looks into the mirror, and he sees in there uh, uh, him, his, himself in the embrace of his parents. And, um, and Ron looks in the mirror and he sees himself a sports star, you know, the adulation of all these people. I wonder if we were to look in that mirror, what would we see? The deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. Everyone would see something. We all worship. Audi um, once had a car advert that stated, worship here. On Christmas Day, more people shopped online than attended church. We all worship something. Something has the place of highest affection in our lives. But the Bible tells us that we were created for the worship of God. Created for the worship of God. The Westminster Catechism sort of summarizes, um, it summarizes biblical teaching on, on various things. And the first one, the first point is this. It says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
man's chief end, his highest purpose, his main, the main thing, the main thing is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God created us to worship and enjoy him. It's our primary purpose, our highest priority. It's what we were made for. And things tend to function best, including humans, when they're used, when they're used primarily for the thing that they were primarily made for. Um, I don't know whether any of you do DIY at all. Um, sometimes if I have to, I'll do it. I'll, I'll give it a shot. We've actually um, caught in our house, we've called it um, Destroy It Yourself. That's what it stands for. Um, I, it's not a particular skill set of mine. Um, but there was this one time a few years ago, and we were doing a bit of renovation in the house, and I was trying to strip the banister to you know, get all the paint off the banister, to bring it back to just the original wood. And, um, I'd been look, reading online and I'd read some things about how you do it and one of the ideas, one of the ways of doing it is to get a heat gun and you apply that and then you can sort of scrape the gloss paint off. Well, I didn't have a heat gun. So I was looking around the house just thinking, oh, what else could I, what could I use, you know, what could do the same thing? And, and I came in the kitchen, I came across a little uh, creme brulee blowtorch. <laughs> do, you know, do you know those things? Um, you see them on MasterChef all the time. Little creme brulee blowtorch. And I thought, yes, perfect. That's going to do the job. And um, so I took it to the uh, staircase and, and started out. And fortunately, you'll be glad to know I didn't burn the house down. Um, but it was a health and safety nightmare. Uh, after about 20 hours of painstaking work, burn marks up the banister, virtually zero progress, and feeling slightly funny on the fumes, um, I had to concede that this just wasn't what this creme brulee blowtorch was designed for. It wasn't its purpose. Things generally work best when they're used for their intended purpose. And it's the same with us. It's the reason why we do things like Myers-Briggs or Strengths Finders. I'm sure a bunch of us have done those. <clears throat> it's because we want to know what we're like in order to help us decide what we should do. What sort of person am I? What sort of job should I do? What team should I be in? What role could I look at being part of? I actually hate those things, those Myers-Briggs things. I, I'm like, don't box me, you know. Does anyone else have that? Just like you feel boxed by it. And then as soon as you say that, you get this look of like, ah, you're one of those people. And, and that's even more annoying because then I start to feel boxed in the box of the person who doesn't want to be boxed, do you know? Do you get that? It's so frustrating. Um, Anyway, they're useful in as much as they give us an idea of what we're like, who we are, what we could do. And it's like that on a bigger scale. The Bible says we were created to know, love, and worship God. That's our purpose. St. Augustine, who was a theologian in the early church, he said this, um, our hearts were made for you and are restless until they find their rest in you. We were made for him. Anything else will ultimately leave us feeling hollow. If our hearts are set most fully on money, then they'll rise and crash as the money comes and goes. If our hearts are set most fully on a person or a relationship, then they will rise and crash with every twist and turn in that relationship. And we'll end up putting pressure on that relationship that it just cannot sustain. If they're set on fame, then they'll rise and fall with every attempt. And even if achieved, it will ultimately disappoint, as so many 
can testify. But God, the worship of God, the one we're designed to worship will never, ever disappoint. Never, ever. He's constant. Never lets us down as we sang this evening. You never let us down. You never let us down. He's faithful. Though we ebb and flow, he never does. The worship of God is the only worship which will not take us on a roller coaster of emotions that will not be ultimately determined by our fear of losing it. The worship of God is the only worship that will not be ultimately defined by our fear of losing it. We're designed for the worship of God. It's our purpose. But more than that, it's actually our pleasure. In case you're sort of concerned that God suddenly sounds like some sort of egotistical tyrant, you know, who demands our worship out of some insecurity, he needs us, you know, to prop him up. Then uh, actually you're in good company because a, well, a number of well-known Christian thinkers have wrestled with this same thing. God creating us to worship sounds weird. But it's helpful to see, firstly, that God doesn't actually need our worship. He just doesn't. It doesn't add to him. It's not an insecurity in him. Psalm 50 says, this is God speaking, he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Or Job 41, who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Or Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. He has no need of our worship. It's not an insecurity in him. So why require it? Why create us for that purpose? The second half of the catechism that we just looked at is helpful. It says to worship, chief man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. C.S. Lewis, who um, some of you know from the Narnia books and Narnia stories, but he also wrote some um, bits of theology. He um, wrestled with this same issue and he eventually um, realized the inescapable connection between worship and joy. We actually worship what we delight in. We glorify what we enjoy. It's just the way we work. Everybody knows that we boast about and talk about and share about the things we enjoy, whether that's um, a hobby or a show or a TV movie or, or a song. When we enjoy something, we share it. We tell about it. We boast about it. Praise is the overflow of joy in something. The more God is our greatest joy, the more he's glorified in us as the source of that joy. If I um, say, you know, I love being with my wife Lizzie, it's just the best thing, I just, there's nothing like it. Time with her, it's just the best time, it's my favorite thing to do, to be with my wife Lizzie. Then you're gonna start to think, wow, actually Lizzie sounds amazing. Because the degree to which I love being with her shouts about how good she is. It says something amazing about her. So when we sing about God, there's no place I'd rather be than here in your love. You know, we sang that this evening. There's no place I'd rather be than here in your love. It's a massive statement about the God whose presence brings such joy. He must be amazing. If there's nowhere else we'd rather be, he must be amazing. Our joy and his glory are tied 
together. The more we enjoy him, the more it says about him. C.S. Lewis writes, fully to enjoy is to glorify. And then he says this, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. He's inviting us to enjoy him. And John Piper looks at that catechism and he says, well, maybe it'd be better put this way. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. By enjoying him forever. God's call to worship him is an invitation to joy. Not a joy that somehow ignores our pain or sadness or heartache, but a deep sort of joy that carries us in the midst of it. The invitation to worship is an invitation to joy. And so worship was never, never meant to be an emotion-free zone. It was never meant to be emotion-free. It's not meant to be some dry, dead discipline that we do while thinking about other things and just wishing really that we could get on with some other things. Worship that looks like that just isn't worship. It might be religion, it might be ritual, but not worship. Worship is the overflow of our affection, our gratitude, our love, our joy in God. So when we sing, let's sing passionately. It has to be full of emotion, full of heart. That's why we lift our hands, close our eyes. That's why you'll see people with tears streaming down their face in the midst of worship, falling to their knees. It's not an emotion-free zone. It's not quite the time for that picture, but it's good nonetheless. <laughs> well done, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, great. Um, <laughs> It's not meant to be an emotion-free zone. Let's just look at those anyway. Football fans are a great example, which is where we can talk about this. Football fans, great example, right? They love something and you just cannot contain it. The emotion just comes out. This guy, I think it was during the Brazil defeat in the World Cup, that previous one, and uh, he got angry, clearly. Uh, but when we love something, when we're passionate about something, emotions follow closely. They just do, it's just the way we work. When something's our greatest joy, we just cannot help express it in some way. And it's going to look different for each of us. Some of us are just more flamboyant than others, and some of us are just a little bit more reserved. So it's going to look different. I'm not saying you've got to just totally stop being yourself. But whatever you're like when you're passionate about something, that's what it means to worship. Full of emotion, full of our hearts and affections. It's our purpose and it's our pleasure. And thirdly, worship is our privilege. If we just um, stop for a minute and think about what we do here on a Sunday, it's absolutely crazy. We gather to sing songs to God, believing that He is present, believing that the God who created the universe, who hung the stars, the God who's from eternity past to eternity future is present with us, that we're singing straight to him, that he's here in our midst. Isn't that crazy? I think often I forget what a privilege this is. I turn up on Sunday and, you know, the music starts and often I have a coffee in my hand and I engage in the singing and then I, maybe I stop and I look around and see what everyone else is doing, think about lunch or, uh, or I think, right now I'm thinking about 
it'd be nice to go and watch the golf when I get home. You know, some Masters. Anyone a fan of the Masters? No? A few people. Um, with a ham sandwich, it's all good. Um, but we think about all these things, right? We stand here and worship, and all these things going through our minds. And I just wonder sometimes, gosh, have I just forgotten what a crazy privilege this is? If you just listen a moment to the author of um, the letter to the Hebrews, he, um, letter of Hebrews, he writes this in chap- chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. There's some big ideas in that passage, um, but it's dealing with some stuff from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, um, one person a year would go into the holy place where God's presence dwelt. It was in this, in this tent and, um, or in the temple later on, but one person a year would go in. And when they went in, they had to have a rope tied around their legs in case, that, in case when they were in there, they just couldn't handle it and they would die. So they had a rope tied around their legs, and all this um, was preceded by animal sacrifices and um, ceremony and, cl- and cl- cleansing ceremonies and this whole range of things, regulations, rules, things to go through before they could go into the presence of God. Entering God's presence was a big, massive deal. In fact, there's one story where um, God descends on a mountain. His presence descends on this mountain, and uh, the people are just told, just don't go anywhere near that mountain. Don't, put, don't set foot on that mountain. It's holy ground. God's presence is there. Don't go near it. Then if you fast forward, however many years it is, and here I am, coffee in my hand, you know. No rope tied around my feet. No dead animals anywhere. No major preparations. Talking about the same God being present. What changed? Well, in between us and then, Jesus came. And so we read about that in that passage, that he, he died. He dealt with those things, those obstacles that were between us and God. He dealt with the sin that was, comes between us and God. It says he tore the curtain in two, the curtain that would separate people from the presence of God, Jesus tore in two. And so he comes straight into his presence, unashamed, with confidence, without the need of any ceremony or ritual. Isn't that amazing? What a privilege, the fact that we can gather like this, worship together like we have done, expect God to be among us, even with coffee in our hands. If only we could keep that in our hearts and our minds as we come to worship, this is a privilege. I read of a, a Roman Catholic priest this week, and um, he recalled how, um, on one occasion, working in the rubbish dumps of Mexico, he um, gave a small gift of cash to a family who, this family just wrestled their livelihood from, um, from uh, the sort of the waste of people who are richer than themselves. And, uh, and he gave them this small gift of cash. And he says, the family was so blown away that over the next two days, he received nine letters of thanks from them. 
Nine letters of thanks. It's as if every few hours they were just like, no way, this is so good, thank you. Let's just write that down quick, let's send that, let's post that to him. Nine letters. If only we could remember the privilege, the generosity of God in inviting us into his presence like that. It's our purpose, our pleasure, and it's a massive, massive privilege. And finally, it's our power. One of the most beautiful things I think about corporate worship, when we gather together to worship like we are here, is that God's presence is with us. Not that he's absent the rest of the time, but as we join together to worship him, um, he's present among us by his spirit. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And in another place it says, where two or three are gathered, there I am among them. It's not like he wasn't there before, but there's some level of change in the degree to which he's present when we gather together in his name. When we, worship, when we gather together to worship, he's with us and so we should expect things to change. Because we gather in the presence of the one who can heal, the one who can free us, the one who can give us peace, who can lift our heavy burdens. I love um, the way John got up this evening in, in worship and just said, you know, let's just see, whether, see what the Lord's doing. What about this? What about, the, what about frozen shoulders? It's to come expectant to worship that God is gonna move is an amazing thing. Just this last, um, had a leaders conference here in January and um, during the worship, one of the worship times, the worship leader just sort of stopped what she was doing and she said, look, I think God's healing people. She said, I think there's some people being healed and, and there were. And then she said, you know, I think God's uh, freeing people from things. And he was. People were started to respond. Just happening in worship, just as we're worshiping. I read uh, this week about a pastor in the, in America called Robert Conwell, and um, whilst doing some counseling work in a hospital, he was taken to uh, room 37, and uh, in this padded cell, there were 37 drug-controlled psychotic patients. And he, he, he went in there, and he was like, I just don't know what to do. And he felt like the Lord say, just go and sit on the floor and sing. <laughs> so he went into the middle of the ward, and he sat on the floor, and he just started to sing. And he sang that song, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And he just did that and he went home and then he came back the next week and did the same thing and one of the patients came and sat and joined him. And he kept doing that each week for this, the next year. And by the end of the year, 35 of the 37 patients had been discharged and gone home. Two of them joined his church. Worship is our power because when we gather together, God is present. I remember in um, leading worship in the, in the Arches, which is our Compassion Outreach, and um, I used to go over there and do worship quite regularly, and I remember one time this, um, this man came up, he was a homeless man, and um, we hadn't done any music that day, and he came over and he said, oh, when are you gonna sing those Jesus songs? Because they make my worries go away. They make my worries go. I love that because it's like, it's not even, it's not in any sort of Christian language. It's just honest. He 
He's just saying something about what happens when we start to sing, when we start to worship. God is among us. There's a story in the Old Testament and um, Israel are going to war and they don't really want to be going to war but they've got these nations attacking them and these nations are pretty huge nations um, and it's not looking good for Israel basically and Jehoshaphat is king at the time and he's you know panicking because it's really not looking good and uh, eventually he's like we're going to have to send the army out but let's send the army out but let's put the let's put musicians and singers at the front let's 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 put the worship at the front as we go out to meet these armies, meet this battle in front of us. And so they put the singers at the front, and it says in 2 Chronicles, it says this, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. They don't even end up going to battle. Worship goes first, and things change. Now, just for the record, I'd like to say, I don't think that's a great idea. From my perspective, uh, I don't, <laughs> just saying. Um, but when we worship God, he inhabits our praises. And when God is present, there's power to change anything. It's not magic, it's just that God is the one who can change things. And so things are more likely to change when he's present, when he's here where he is. And when we gather, he is here. Right now, this evening, as you're sitting there, as I'm standing here, God is here among us. Anything could happen. So when we come together to worship, to sing in the narrow sense, to surrender our lives in that broader sense, and to ascribe to him greatest worth, in the widest sense. We do so because this is our purpose. We do so because God is our greatest joy, our greatest pleasure. We do so recognizing that it's a total privilege and we do so expectant that anything could happen because God himself is present. This is no cheap thing that we do. It's not something to be ashamed of or to push to the periphery. We are a worshiping church because it's our purpose, it's our pleasure, our privilege, and our power. There is no more important thing that we could be than a worshiping church.